I'm going to jump right into it. Luke chapter 11 is where we are. Let's pick it up in verse 14 where we left off last week. We, we, we pick it up and it says, And he, speaking of Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And so it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. The idea here is that there's a man who is demon-possessed by a mute demon and the mute demon made him unable to speak. That's the idea. So that when the demon had been cast out, the man then was freed up to be able to speak. That's the picture here. Uh, And so the multitudes marveled, verse 15, but some of them have said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, that means literally Lord of the Flies. Uh, We'll get into that more in in just a minute. So uh, by Beelzebub, uh, the ruler of the demons, uh, others uh, testing him, uh, sought from him a sign from heaven. So so this is uh, the, the situation here. Um, Jesus here, he's operating in the Galilee region, and uh, part of his ministry was healing and casting out those possessed uh, by demons. Um, We'll get into the idea of those possessed by demons in just a minute, but we know that these were the authenticating signs of Jesus and his ministry, Um, that Jesus had power uh, over over sickness, he had uh, power over, you know, various diseases, and he had power over demons, certainly um, the power given to him by the Father. He has stepped out of his deity. He's operating in humanity by the empowering of the Holy Spirit um, here. And the empowering work that Jesus is doing to cast these demons out is there to authenticate the truthfulness of his message. Uh, and so we've seen this happen over and over again in the New Testament where Jesus had that power, where he gave his disciples that power, that same power to uh, heal people, to cast out disease, to cast out uh, demons. Um, and so this is one of literally dozens of examples in the New Testament. And <clears throat> the idea here, the scriptures teach that demon possession is a real thing. Uh, it, it's, it's not just the, the thing of myth. It's not just the thing of, of horror movies. But demon possession is actually a real thing. The Bible says that Satan fell from heaven. He was, he was one of the most you know, powerful angels created by God. He was a worship leader in heaven. Um, and then he decided to rebel against God, and when he rebelled, he was cast down to the earth. He had persuaded a third of the angels to rebel with him, and so now what happens is that um, Satan and his fallen angels are operating here on the earth in the demonic realm. Paul put it this way. He said in Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places, okay? And so, so this is what Paul says that we as believers are up, again and up against, and what this shows us is that demons are highly organized into ranks, and they're actively waging all-out war. And that's the bad news. The bad news is, is that there's a demonic realm, that, that Satan and demons are real. They're actively working in the world. Um, that's the bad news. Now, the good news is, is that if you are a child of God, if you invited Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and Jesus has come and taken residence in your heart, and he's made you a new creation in Christ, 
Well, then the good news is that you can't be demon-possessed. That's what we're looking at here with this man. He is, in fact, demon-possessed. But as believers, as followers of God, we cannot be demon-possessed. The Apostle Paul speaking about this, uh, or I'm sorry, the Apostle John speaking about this, he said, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, that them, uh, referring to demons, right? Uh, And he says, you've overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Uh, Paul, speaking to the Romans, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So so we can't be demon-possessed, but we can be oppressed by demons, Um, we can be tempted by the demonic realm, just as Ephesians chapter 6 indicates, right? And, and so these are possibilities. And by the way, in the temptation that takes place for Christians, um, a lot of times we want to say, oh, the devil made me do it. Um, and we, we oftentimes will ascribe, now Satan is very powerful. He is a very powerful enemy. Uh, more powerful than we are in and of ourselves, quite frankly. And a lot of times what we'll do when we, th- when we think about Satan is that we'll ascribe to him more power than he actually has. We actually have a tendency sometimes <clears throat> to think of Satan sometimes in terms of uh, some of the attributes that only God himself possesses. For instance, you know, if I say, well, the devil de- made me do it. You know, I was, I was tempted by Satan. Well, he's not, you know, omnipresent, uh, which is an attribute of God. God can be everywhere all the time. Satan can't be everywhere all the time. So it's, it's highly unlikely that the devil made you do it because he's got bigger fish to fry than you or me, quite frankly, you know? And so, so chances are, if you have been influenced or tempted by the demonic realm, and by the way, there is what I like to call this, this um, satanic trinity that exists in the world today. There, there is the temptation of Satan and his demons, there is the temptation that exists in the world system, and there is the temptation of your own sinful fallen heart. Your sinful flesh will, will tempt you as well. And so it is this unholy satanic trinity in the world so often that we're up against when it comes to battling with the forces, uh, the principalities and the powers, the, the forces of the, the rulers of this world, uh, Satan and his demons. So... You know, that, that, that quite frankly is the truth. But a lot of times it's not Satan himself who's going to tempt us. It's either the world that's tempting us or it's our flesh that's tempting us. Uh, or, you know, certainly it could be some, one of the ranks of demons that, that is uh, tempting you. But here in our text now, we're not dealing with this oppression that comes from the demonic realm. Uh, we're, ta- we're dealing with a guy who, who is not saved, not born again by the Spirit of God. He's possessed uh, by a demon. And so Jesus is showing up, and he's going to cast uh, out this demon. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, this demon has, has, uh, has possessed him. It is a mute demon, and so that renders him unable to speak. Now, we might be tempted to go, oh, you know, uh, if a person is mute, then, the, then they have a demon. Or if because, you know, a demon makes a guy have a seizure, then if people are, are prone to having seizures, then, you know, then maybe they have a demon. That's the, you just, you can't make that black and white statement. Uh, 
Sometimes there is uh, demonic possession that results in some sort of physical manifestation, but sometimes illness is just illness. People uh, can, can be ill in this world. They can be sick, and the reason why we have sickness and ultimately death I mean, yes, technically is because of Satan. It's because of sin. Sin is, sin is entered into the world. And so death has entered into the world. Disease has entered into the world. And so, so in that sense, yes, we can say it comes from, from you know, the demonic realm. But you, you, you can't make the leap and say, oh, you know, you've got, a, you've got the demon of muteness. You, you know, you have the demon of ap- athlete's foot. You know, you have the demon of, of halitosis or whatever, you know. Um, and sometimes bad breath is demonic. You just, oh my gosh, you know, brush your teeth for crying out loud. But, but no, <laughs> uh, it's not that all illness is equated to, to demonic possession. Yes, demons are powerful. Yes, um, they are technically able to possess a human body um, that, that is absence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. So, so yes, Satan is, is able, and the demons are able to possess somebody's body. And yes, that does cause sometimes uh, manifest in a physical ailment kind of way. Um, but, you know, you can't just all treat it with the same treatment. Anyway, so, <clears throat> so Jesus here, he's dealing with the demon. He's casting him out. And in so doing, as Jesus is, is working this miracle... Um, the focus shifts from the guy who's being delivered to the, the crowd. And really, the, the, the story and the lessons that we're going to extrapolate from the story today, they come from Jesus' interaction with the crowd and the crowd's perception of what it is that Jesus is doing. And there's three basic types of people that we see reflected in our text uh, today. We see that there are those who marveled at Jesus' work there in verse 14. We see that there are those who reject and oppose outright the working of Jesus in verse 15. And we see those that want more proof in verse 16 of the works of Jesus. And by the way, we see these same three types operating in the world today. These same three types of people that respond to the miraculous works of the Lord uh, today. We see those who marvel at the works of God. And these basically, there's, there's two subtypes of, of these types of people, those who marvel at the works of God. There are those that marvel at the works of God. Um, and by the way, that word marvel, it means to wonder and to admire in amazement. Okay, And so there are those, two different subtypes of those that wonder and, and admire in amazement. There are those that wonder and admire in amazement, and it translates to their response. They respond obediently to God. They worship the Lord. They surrender to his lordship in their life. I'm admiring in amazement the things that God does. But there's another subtype, and this is actually the subtype that we deal with here in our text today. There are those that are wondering and admiring in amazement, but that wonderment and that admiring of the works of Jesus doesn't translate from the appreciation to the application. In other words, there are those that, oh, hey, you know, this is, this is great. Jesus is a good person. He was a good teacher. He, Jesus, had, powerful, had power to work miracles. Yeah, Jesus has power to work miracles today. I appreciate him. Jesus is my homeboy. 
you know, <clears throat> Jesus is just all right with me. You know, uh, <laughs> Jesus, I could use a handy guy like you in my life, by the way. You know, I could use a little more patience and a little more prosperity in my business or whatever it happens to be. And so there are those people who appreciate in wonder and amazement at what God does, but they really don't have any intention of making him Lord, of surrendering their lives to him. It doesn't translate from the, oh, wow, that was cool, that, 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 that's God, to he's my Lord, right? And so, so there's that group. Secondly, we see that there's those who reject and oppose Jesus, and we see these types operating in our world today. Certainly there are those who reject and oppose Jesus outright in, in, in our world today. Um, these are people who, a lot of times, they'll see Christianity as being evil. You know, sometimes if you, you go on some sort of a news article, isn't it amazing? You go, to an, you go on, on, online, you read some sort of news article, and uh, a lot of times they'll allow comments in the online news articles. And a lot of times, isn't it amazing, you go to those comments, how quickly, doesn't matter what the, the story happens to be about, inevitably in the comments, somebody's making some sort of political statement. You know, it's like the, the article is about a Girl Scout selling Girl Scout cookies. And now we're talking about Trump, you know. How'd we get there, you know. And <clears throat> sometimes uh, the, the political comments uh, will be religious comments. And people inevitably bashing on Christianity. I'm amazed at how often I see this and how this has increased. And so there are those that reject and oppose Jesus outright, who have want nothing to do uh, with the Lord. Hey, the world would be a better place if we just did away with religion altogether. And we see these type of people reflected here uh, in the text, accusing Jesus that, hey, you do these works by the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, uh, or another variant of that, the Lord of the dwelling, which we'll look at in just a minute. Now, these are the type of people that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 5, where he said, what sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is better is bitter. What <clears throat> sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. Isaiah could have been talking about so many people today. So this is the other type of people we see. The third type of people we see in our text that, are, that we also see in society are those people who want more proof. Here, Jesus does this incredible miracle, and yet they want more proof. They want to see, you know, hey, we, we, we don't quite buy it. Uh, do more works, uh, uh, you know, an example for us. I had, I had a friend. It's so sad. He used to, for a long time, professed faith in Christ, and he's since walked away and denied the Lord and denied the faith. And basically, what he's tripped up on is, well, I, you know what? <clears throat> I, want, I don't see a miracle from God. Like, you know, why couldn't, he points to his coffee cup. He says, if God really is God, why can't he do a miracle for me? Why can't he move my coffee cup from here to there? You know, and, and basically wants, wants, you know, God to perform a magic trick for him. For, for him to believe. And so there are those people who want uh, more proof. And this is what they're saying in our text. They're saying, oh, hey, great. You know, you did, you did this miracle of casting out that demon, but eh, you know what? If you're really God, why don't you do something miraculous in the heavens? You know, we, we want more proof. <clears throat> so what, is, what does Jesus do here? He responds to these three different types of people. And we see that he responds first by addressing those who outright reject and oppose what he's doing. Notice verses 17 through 20. <clears throat> it says, 
Uh, but he, you know, we had read that others testing him sought it from him a sign from heaven. But he, verse 17, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against a house uh, falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, you know, hey, you, you're going you're gonna to come against them and, and you're wondering, you know, you're making this accusation against me. It would, you know, apply to them as well. Verse 20 says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come uh, upon you. Right? And, and so what's happening, the accusation uh, of those rejecting and opposing Jesus is that Jesus is in league with Satan. This is the idea. And, and that's the meaning of them saying he casts out demons by Beelzebub. Beelzebub was one of the names for the Philistine god Baal. And uh, it means Lord of the Flies, as, as we've, we've talked about. And a variant of that name is Beelzebul, which basically means the Lord of the Dwelling. And Jesus ties that into an illustration that he now uses. He says there in verse 21, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in place, or on peace, but when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoils. Jesus here makes three arguments. Basically, what he says in the first argument, verses 17 and 18, is based upon logic. What he says basically is, look, why would Satan fight against himself and divide his own kingdom? You, you saying that, it's just, number one, it's just illogical. Um, you know, and, and so his second argument there in verse 19 targets their arbitrary conclusions. Because basically what he says is, look, if I'm empowered by Satan, what does that say about your own exorcists? See, in these days, religious leaders exercised what was known as uh, the rites of exorcism. I think it's Josephus, who's a first century historian, talks about how uh, Solomon had conferred the rites of exorcism upon the religious leaders. And the way it worked was that they would make this big production when there was somebody that was demon-possessed, and they would attempt to cast out the demon. And it was a big, elaborate deal. Um, and evidently it involved one of the religious leaders wearing a gold ring, which would, they would wave around. There were lots of words. There were incantations. And there were questionable results. You know, sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't work. Um, and some commentators, by the way, suggest that because they had questionable results, that there was an element of uh, jealousy here with Jesus showing more power uh, to consistently cast out demons. And so they're trying to delegitimize what it is uh, that, uh, that he was doing. Um, and basically what Jesus is saying here in response, he's, he's telling people, look, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't totally fully embrace 
your own exorcists and attribute all of their works to God and then have me show up and, and exercise a demon and say that my work is satanic. satanic. And so, so that, that's his, his argument here. You can't have it both ways. Well, we see his third argument here to this group of people that outright oppose and reject his work in verses 20 through 22. And, and this argument focuses on Jesus' power, and this is going to be key for the rest of our, of our study today. He's focusing on Jesus' power. He employs this play on words with the name uh, Beelzebul, um, and basically it means uh, Lord of the Flies, but certainly Lord of the Dwelling. Uh, is another uh, another variant of that. And so Jesus now ha- does this play on words with the Lord of the dwelling, and he's talking about this strong man. It's a picture of Satan uh, with his armor guarding his dwelling place and his goods. And listen, that's what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that Satan's dwelling place is earth. And so basically, again, Satan fell from heaven, brought a third of the angels with him, and the Bible says that Satan currently operates as the ruler of this world. So this world is his dwelling place, and the Bible makes it clear that he's taken many people captive to do his will. So we have a picture of this strong man in his dwelling place and his goods or possessions, and that's a very clear picture of this world, Satan being that strong man, world his dwelling place, and fallen men and women as his possessions. And so this is the the picture Jesus is painting here. But listen, all of that changes when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. The picture here is that, yes, there is a strong man, but if you have a stronger man, he's going to take care of business. And Jesus is saying, basically, look, get this picture. Yeah, there's a, there, there, is, there is the Beelzebul, the, the Lord of the dwelling, but I'm the Lord of Lord and the kings of kings. That's what Jesus is saying. And so, basically, the Bible teaches that when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, that, hey, Jesus led captivity captive. Jesus came to set the prisoners free. Bible makes it clear. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, you confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you will be saved. And what will happen is that you who, and we've experienced that, right? So many of us here have, have experienced, I know what it is to have lived in bondage to Satan. I know what it is to have been a person who had been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. But I also know what it is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, to come and have your eyes open to the fact that there's a God in heaven who loves me. And he loves me so much, the Bible says he demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that we can come to know the one who will set us free from Satan and sin and death and bondage and, and, and we can be forgiven of our sins. Jesus, speaking in John's gospel before his death during the Passover feast, he said this, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, as he said, by the way, speaking of his crucifixion, he said, I will draw everyone to myself. 
Paul said this to the Colossians in Colossians 2. He said, in this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And this is the point that Jesus is making here in Luke 11. He's saying, look, you can't defeat a strong man unless you're stronger than he is. And Jesus listen, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto myself. If I be nailed to a cross, if I suffer and die for the sins of mankind and, and be placed on that cross, hey, I'm going to draw everyone to me. I'm gonna, this is the way to the Father. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus would say. And so there is this beautiful picture. And what Jesus says here, essentially, verse 20 there, basically saying, look, you better check yourself because I'm casting out demons by the finger of God. Get the picture. Get it. Understand it. We're talking about strength. We're talking about power. We're talking about a man whose life has been train wrecked and just been, you know, demon possessed. It's not a pretty picture. And, and, and many of you know and have experienced the power, the bondage power of Satan in your lives before Jesus set you free. And you know how that was. You know what it was to be absolutely in bondage to Satan. And what Jesus says here is, you know what? It, by the finger of God, I'm setting you free. Like, this is God's light work. It's not this overwhelming, powerful, over, oh, I, who on earth is going to be able to, to set this person free, Jesus says, <laughs> it's the finger of God. He's like, next, you know, it's nothing for God. That's his picture. And so he's saying, look, you better check yourself because I'm casting out demons by the finger of God. And so you better realize that the kingdom of God has arrived here among you. In other words, Jesus is declaring, hey, look, there's a new sheriff in town. And, uh, and, and, I've invaded Satan's territory. I'm destroying his armor and his weapons, and I'm going to claim his spoils. I saw this video this week. This totally illustrated this. Maybe you've seen it. It's on social media, but there's a gal, and um, her, her, she and her boyfriend go to the vet to, to get her dog checked out. And so they're there at the vet, and they're receiving them. They've got, you know, closed camera footage all over this veterinarian office, and so they show up and, and oh, you know, we're going to check the dog in. They're putting them into the, you know, the, they've gone from the waiting room now to the back office. They're putting them in an exam room. And at this point, she takes the opportunity and she asks the staff where the bathroom is. So they direct her to the bathroom as they take her, her boyfriend and the dog into the exam room, close the door. So then she comes out of the bathroom with her boyfriend now in the, you know, in the exam room with the door shut, hands a note to the people there at the desk. And the note basically says, uh, my boyfriend uh, has, has taken me hostage for the last several days and is beating me, and he has a gun, and he's threatened to kill me. She had talked her boyfriend into taking the dog to the vet as a ruse to get away from this bondage. And so what happens is the, the veterinarian staff, people, they, they, they try to play it cool. They don't do a very good job of playing it cool, by the way. Um, as you watch the video, uh, they're pretty obvious about it, but they're trying to play it cool. And they call 911, and the cops show up, and the next thing you see in the camera angle from the exam room is, you know, there's uh, ugly, beating, horrible, you know, bondage-taking boyfriend sitting with a very nervous girlfriend, and the door opens up, and two armed police officers come in and hook him up and take him off to jail and set the gal free. And I thought, wow, what a, what a picture right there. 
Because here is this gal completely taken captive by this loser to do his bidding, to do his will, desperately wanting to be set free. What needed to happen? She needed somebody stronger than him to show up and to set her free. And that's what we need. We need that stronger, that, that, that one who, you know, Christ crucified. The only hope for you and me to be set free from the bondage. And listen, I, that's, you know, it's one of the takeaways for our message today. I just want you to hear it. Because today I wonder if you're in bondage today. I wonder if you're here and you're hearing the message. But I wonder today if you're in bondage, if you need Jesus to set you free. See, because maybe today you're, you know, you're in bondage to, to, to drugs or to alcohol or to some, you know, some type of besetting sin, some sort of a, a, an oppressive uh, work of the enemy in your life. Or maybe today you've just come to the end of yourself. You recognize, man, my whole life I've been taken captive by the enemy to do as well. And, and like the woman at the well, you just recognize, I just, I just need to drink from living water. I've been drinking from all the wrong wells. I just need Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus has come to set you free. Come to set me free. He's the only one that can do that. It's the only power that's available to us that can save us from Satan and sin is death. And it's sin and death. And, and listen, he wants, he wants to set you free today. And so this is the first group that Jesus talks to. It's those people that are outright just saying, you know, hey, you, you're doing this by the work of the enemy. He's saying, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. There's a more powerful work that's, a, that's afoot here. The second group Jesus responds to are those who marvel at his works. Those who marvel at his works. Remember, this group falls into two subcategories. There's the marveling, the admiring and amazement and responding to Jesus as Lord, and then there's those that just, oh yeah, I appreciate what's going on. I, yeah, I might even admire and be amazed at the transforming work that I've seen Jesus do or the miracles that I've seen Jesus do, but you know what? I'm not doing anything with it. I'm not yielding the lordship of my life uh, to the Lord, and this is the second group that Jesus now addresses. What he's basically saying is, look, there's no room for neutrality. Look again, verse 23 through 28. He says, uh, he gives this, this illustration of the strong man and says, when the stronger comes upon him, overcomes him, takes him from him his armor, which he trusted, and he divides his spoils. Jesus is saying, this is what I'm fixing to do when I die on the cross. He says, he, verse 23, who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, hey, look, to be, de- to be undecided is to be decided. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. And he says, verse 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, uh, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Get very clearly here. Jesus is talking about, look, there is an unclean spirit, and we don't know why, but we see that spirits, these demonic spirits, have this insatiable, insatiable desire to possess human beings. And, and so there is this desire, and for whatever reason, we don't know what the impetus is, what the reason is, but this spirit, he says, the spirit goes out of a man. 
So you've got a man who has been possessed, and, and then for whatever reason, there are those times when, this, when a possessed person, the, the demon will leave that person, and, and so what happens, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He's talking about this, this demon. He says, well, I'm going to return to my house, meaning your body or the, the, the not yours if you're saved, but, you know, the person that's, that's demon possessed. I'm going to go back to them. That's where I'm going to go. And when he comes, Jesus says, verse 25, he finds it swept and put in order. We'll come back to that. And then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first, verse 27, and it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you, but he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The second group Jesus is responding to here, those who, who are amazed at his works, but they really haven't responded to it, right? They're, they marveled at his works. And, and what Jesus is saying here, look, there's no room for neutrality. It's not just enough to appreciate Jesus. It's not just enough to marvel at the works of Jesus. It's not even um, enough to be overwhelmed with emotion and affection at the works that Jesus does. Like this woman who shouts, wow, your mom is a really blessed woman. By the way, first hint of Mary worship here in the scriptures that we, that we see here, this, this, this desire to worship his mom. Oh, your mom is blessed, you know, because of what's gone down here. And Jesus says, look, even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Listen, Jesus is emphasizing this point with the example of a man who sweeps the house of his life clean. Okay, this is the example he emphasizes the point with. Look, there's no room for neutrality. And you got this guy who sweeps the house of his life clean. Now, the picture here is somebody who cleans up their life in their own power. We don't know, for whatever reason, this demon has left this, in this example that Jesus gives, this demon has left that person's life. And now in, I mean, the epitome of self-help, this guy decides, I'm going to clean up my life. And so his, li- his, his life, Jesus says here in Luke's gospel, is swept and put into order. The demon has been exercised temporarily. The, he swept the house of his life clean. He's put things back in order. And it sounds great. Wow, the guy got his life cleaned up, everything swept and put in order. But listen, here's where the harmony of the Gospels is so helpful because where Luke tells us that his his house is swept and and everything put into order, Matthew's Gospel gives us an additional detail. Matthew's Gospel records the same event, but not only does it tell us there that his house was, was swept and put into order, it also tells us that his house was empty was empty. And, and we read that and we think, oh yeah, it was emptied out of all the bad stuff. And certainly that's true. But listen, his, his house, the house of his life, was also empty of God. It was empty of God. And this is the point, that there are those people that appreciate God, they appreciate Jesus, they appreciate what he's done, they, they welcome maybe the works of, of, of religiosity, 
to where it's like, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't hang out with girls who do, and all of that stuff, right? But what they do is, what they're doing is an exercise of their flesh. It's not an exercise of the power of the Spirit of God in their life. So yeah, your house is swept, and now, now your house is all put in order, and now all you got these practices maybe in your life that are helping you not to reap the consequences of a sinful life, but what is it that you're lacking is you're lacking God. You're lacking the power of the Holy Spirit in your life because it's a work of religion. It's not a work of a saved relationship with Christ in your life. And this is where I ask you to search your hearts and really take a walk with Are you saved by Jesus' work on the cross? I always like people to to take a walk with this question. Hey, do you think you're going to heaven, yes or no? Yeah, I think I'm going to heaven. Why? Why? And if your answer to that why is, well, I'm basically a good person. If your answer to that why is basically some variant of, well, you know, my good works outweigh my bad works kind of thing, you got to check your spiritual pulse. Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the way you know whether or not you're going to heaven or hell, it all comes down to Jesus. Jesus and his work on the cross. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Bible says if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible says then you will be saved. It's by belief in Christ, surrender to the person and the work of Christ. That's how we're saved. And so the question is, man, is your house empty? You know, because maybe it's all swept, maybe it's all put in order, But man, Jesus is saying, you got to pick a side. It's not about just doing the works of religion. That, hey, listen, power and control in your life, it's absolutely an illusion. Satan is a strong enemy, and we need the stronger one, and his name is Jesus. Chuck Smith said this in his commentary on this gospel. He said, oftentimes people come to me, and they say, oh, pray pray the prayer of deliverance. And I say, I pray the power of entrance, the entering of the power of Jesus Christ into your life. When he enters, the darkness has to go. Light and darkness cannot coexist. There is real danger for a person just coming to God just for the help that they might get, coming just for healing rather than the healer, just for deliverance rather than the deliverer because you can end up in worse shape than you were ever in. Than you, than you ever were if you don't substitute or replace that power within your life, that empty area. So that's the thing, man. We got to pray for the deliverer. We got to pray for the healer, not just for the works of God, but for the person of God. That's where the power is. Well, real quickly, and we'll finish up here. The third group that Jesus responds to, he's responding to those that want more proof. They want, hey, show us, we need more proof. Maybe even you have been in that. Maybe you're here today and you go, look, I'm here, but I'm still undecided and I need more proof. Listen to what Jesus says to this group. Verse 29 through 32. While the crowds (coughs) were were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. 
For as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Listen to me very carefully. I'm going to make my point we're going to be done. What Jesus is saying is, look, the only sign that people are going to get when they say, we need, we need more, give me more proof, I need a sign. He says, look, here's the sign you're going to get. It's the sign of Jonah, the prophet. What was the sign of Jonah, the prophet? We all know the story. Jonah and the whale, right? We don't know if it was a whale, but, you know, the Bible says a great fish. But we all know the story, right? Jonah and the whale. What happens? God tells this prophet of God, you go to Nineveh and you preach the gospel. And Jonah says, I ain't going. Why? Because he hates the people of Nineveh. Wicked, awful, horrible people. And, and, and Jonah later will confess, he'll, he'll admit, I know your nature, God. You're a good God. You want to forgive. And they don't deserve to be forgiven, so I ain't going. So he jumps on a ship going the opposite direction. God stops him. The ship encounters problems, the storm, and everybody's freaking out. And Jonah goes, eh, here's the problem. It's me. Just throw me over. You guys will be fine. And they do, and they're fine. And he goes down, and that's when the fish swallows him up. Three days in the belly of that fish. And then the fish barfs him up on the, on the shores there of Nineveh. And he goes and, and preaches. And basically still having a hard heart, hard heart towards the Ninevites. It's not the most radical message. He just says, hey, you know what? Uh, it's going to be this period of time, and then you're all going to be smoke. You're all toast. That's it. You know? Uh, and... and People, the whole nation repents and comes to the Lord. Just this natural, marvelous, supernatural work. The point is, is it's a picture of Jesus. Three days in the belly of the fish. Jesus, three days in the belly of the earth. Jesus is saying, look, you want a sign? Here's the sign. I died for the sins of all mankind. I suffered. I died irrefutably on a cross, spear through my side. I died. And then they buried me in a tomb. And three days later, I miraculously rose from the dead. I conquered Satan. I conquered sin. I conquered death. That's the sign you're going to get. And listen, here's what, here's what Paul says about that sign in 1 Corinthians. He says, I passed on to you what was, the most, what, uh, what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen, here's the point, here's the proof, the sign of Jonah. He was seen by Peter and by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have died. In other words, look, hey, what's the most powerful testimony in a court of law? It's eyewitness testimony. Paul says, Look, we all saw it. Over 500 of his followers saw it. Some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go ask them. I'm just saying that this happened, and there's, there's hundreds of eyewitnesses that could, that could stand up and go, well, I didn't see that. No record, no recording, never happened. None of these hundreds of people refuted the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he says, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I, Paul, also saw him. Here's the point. Look, 
overwhelming proof. You want, you want a sign that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? How about this? How about they nail you to a cross, they mock you till you drop dead, they throw a spear in your side uh, to prove your death, then they bury you, and then three days later you rise from the dead. That's the sign. And Jesus said, look, this is it. You want a sign that Jesus is who he claims to be? That's the sign. Here's my question for you today as we close now in prayer. If you're saying, I need more proof, you got all the proof you're ever going to need. It's, an, it's a matter of, hey, you know, are you going to believe? Are you going to make the choice to believe that what Jesus said about himself and what the scriptures say about Jesus is true? If you're in a place, in a position today where you're rejecting the Lord, you got to come to the position, you got to come to the place where you recognize, hey, listen, it is God who can save you who alone can do the work that you desperately need. If you're a person here today, you think, oh man, I'm trusting in religion. I appreciate Jesus. Uh, and, you know, I appreciate, you know, all the, the workings of religion. You got to take a walk with that and go, look, religion doesn't save you. Relationship with the Savior is what saves you.